Cheers to Donuts with your host, Steve Portugal. Hey, and here we are with another episode of Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk to the people who are leading user research in their organization. This is part two of my interview with Lisa Reichelt. If you're just joining the podcast with this episode, I'd encourage you to go back to the previous one for the first part of our conversation. As a reminder, my public workshop, Fundamentals of Interviewing Users, is happening September 13th in San Francisco. There'll be a link for more information in the show notes. It'd be great if you recommended this workshop to a friend or a colleague. I also teach classes directly to in-house teams, so reach out to learn more. Beyond teaching, in my consulting practice, I also lead user research studies, so let's talk if that's a way that I can help your team. Of course, supporting my own consulting work is the best way to support Dollars to Donuts. Share your feedback about the podcast by email at donuts at portugal.com or on Twitter at Dollars to Donuts. That's D-O-L-L-R-S-T-O-D-O-N-U-T-S. You know, as user researchers, we love our sticky notes. A few years ago, in an article about how IBM was being transformed by design, a key achievement in this transformation was the ability for staff to order post-it notes. In some ways, that was the saddest thing I had ever heard, that IBM was so broken that ordering a quotidian office supply item was verboten, and that enabling this was seen as a victory worthy of mention. But it also was very real and acknowledged how much of an uphill battle these corporate transformation efforts really are. So this carrier of innovative meaning, both in its legendary origins and in its rapaciously consuming audience, this product of the 3M company clearly struggles itself with innovation. We've had the weird dispensers, the odd sizes and shapes, the reverse fan fold, which may be tied to the dispenser, but I've mostly just found them showing up in the most aggravating moments in a session. I think many years ago, they came out with super sticky notes, which seems like a complete contradiction of the value proposition, but I think it's just an acknowledgement that the original formulation fell off more than we'd like. I don't think of them as super sticky, just the proper amount of sticky for most uses. Anyway, the latest thing I came across really made me scratch my head. It's a pack of bright orange post-its, probably part of a series of exciting new notes with the aspirational branding, A World of Color. This particular pack had an even more aspirational and even less relevant tagline, Rio de Janeiro Collection. I can imagine interior paint, fabric, even car finishes being marketed this way, but it's so strange to see on a package of sticky notes. The post-it for the researcher, the designer, is a backdrop, a carrier for something else. It already is aspirational because of what we're putting on it. Making it a collection, associating it with a far-off, fabulous city, is just ridiculous. Okay, here is part two of my interview with Lisa Reichelt, the head of research and insights at Atlassian in Sydney, Australia. It was quite an in-depth interview that's been broken up into two parts. This is part two. You can check out the previous episode for part one. Let's get to it. Yeah, I'd love to hear about some of the other kinds of organizations you've worked in uh, and what those have been like. And Sure. Well, my for probably five or six years before I uh, joined Atlassian, I worked in government, first of all, in the UK. And then, then I moved back to Australia and worked in the Australian government for 18 months, something like that, I think. Um, and that was 
that was super different, super different to to Atlassian. So it was it was a much more kind of familiar ground for me in that it was organisations that you'd go into going, we should really go and like involve people in our design process. And they would go, why would you possibly want to do that? Um, so that's that that's a whole that's a whole different problem set than than what we're dealing with, I think, in sort of tech companies. Um, but hugely rewarding as well. Uh, so yeah, really, yeah, very very different. Right, and both those governments, uh, I don't know, seem like their commitments, I guess they're just different cases, but their respective commitments to design, I don't know, digital services seems to be the term that gets thrown around for for that, but it seems like there's been significant commitments uh, in both those cases. I don't know what, so you're coming into environments where someone has said, we want to do this, we want to change that default, and what like in the UK, what was sort of the, the how did that get initiated? Okay, so in the UK, we had a MP, Francis Maud, late in his career. Um, I don't exactly know how, how, it, how it came to him that we could probably be doing better with our digital services than we are. I don't, don't fully know that backstory. But he, it did come to his attention that we could do better. And he uh, recruited a lovely woman by the name of Martha Lane Fox, Dame Martha Lane Fox now, uh, to basically help him come up with an approach to how we should how we should solve the problem of of the UK digital uh, government services not being what they needed to be. Uh, Martha worked with a bunch of very smart people, uh, in particular a guy called Tom Lusmore, to come up with some recommendations. And it was off the back of those recommendations that the government digital service was put together, and. I, um, you know, Tom and uh, a bunch of other people that he'd worked with in various places around London and the UK came together and um, started working on trying to transform how government thought about approaching digital services. And you know, they were they they had uh, you know their design principles. I think were really that the the best way of of setting out what their beliefs were. And you know, fortunately for me, the number one of those principles was around uh, putting user needs. And not government needs first, and so yeah, culturally there was a, a cohort in there who were well supported uh, within you know the the political system, and were able to really kind of make great shifts and changes and, and progress on that front as a result. It seems to me just from like watching Twitter or LinkedIn or just who I keep coming across uh, that there are research people, titled researchers, every kind of nook and cranny of, I guess, yeah, government services, digital and otherwise, I think, in the UK. Mm. It seems like, you know, from the time that you got involved, it's it's built into something. It seems like it's sort of changed the way that government is delivering services. I, I don't know if that's an accurate assessment. Yeah, I think, yeah. So it's when I started at GDS, that kind of came off the back of, like, there was a, a lot of talk about being user-centred, but I couldn't really see exactly where the users were in the process. So I, I was publicly a little bit critical of them at one point, kind of saying, well, you know, see that you, you know, there's a, you're thinking about users a lot and you're looking at the data that they leave behind a lot, but you know, are you actually actually involving getting a good understanding of them in the process of of designing, you know, transforming these services. Um, and so I was given the opportunity to come in and, and put my money where my mouth was, such, such as it was. Um, and at that point, there was the odd kind of researcher here and there. There, was, there were like three or four, I think, um, at GDS 
at the time and they were stretched across about 25 different projects. Uh, And I remember sitting down at their team meetings and the team meetings were basically sitting in front of a spreadsheet, looking at all of the projects that they were supposed to be covering, dividing their days into quarter days and working out how how on earth they were going to try to help to support these teams, um, not all of which were in London, so a lot of them kind of theoretically required either either quite a bit of travelling or just dealing with on the telephone. Um, and that and that was it. So, so they were there, but they were really not well set up to be effective. And I was not really, you know, I'd, I'd worked with government as a consultant in the past and, and was pretty sceptical about um, whether or not that would be a brilliant place for me to work long term. Um, and so when it came time for me to say what I thought we should do, I wasn't really that worried if I lost my job. So I was able to say what I thought we should do, which is I thought we should have one researcher per team, um, which at that point in time was like just an outrageous thing to be saying was absurd. Um, And we didn't quite get one researcher per team, but we did get quite a big chunk of researchers. And so... The the other thing that I did that I kind of look back on and think that was a really important thing to do was I put one researcher on as many teams as I had researchers and I just left the rest um, pretty much unsupported. And and the thinking behind that was if I could just give a bunch of people an opportunity to show what good looks like, then we could create a demand for that good. Uh, And if we stretched everybody across multiple things, we would never be able to, to create that showcase, that exemplar, that let people see what they could have. And I think that kind of made all the difference. Um, in the early stages, again, like speaking about getting proactive rather than reactive, one of the big challenges that we had was like, how do we get people even to plan for this? Like, how do we get researchers and budget for what researchers need to do into the projects you know, ahead of time? Because, you know, people people would come to us going, oh, we're, right, we're starting discovery next week. Can you, can you, I've heard you can help us with that. Yeah. And by then, like, you know, the, the budgets had been approved like three or four months before and it was trying to, you had to like, kick off an engineer to get a researcher, which is always a super popular thing to do, not. Um, so, yeah, so, and then there were things that we did where we just sort of made rules about, you know, you have to have one work researcher per team at least three days a week, and it was three days because then you couldn't split them across two projects equally. Um, you had to do research at least every sprint, which was two weeks for us, and you had to involve at least this many people. In, and that basically gave us a formula for working out how much research would cost in a project, which let us get like that number into the project uh, budgets really early on. Um, and these are like really totally boring things that have got really nothing to do with research at all, but were hugely uh, enabling. Um, by the time I was leaving GDS, I, instead of having the problem of going, you should have a researcher in there, you should have a researcher in there, I would have people coming to me initiating projects going, right, I'm starting a project, I'm going to need at least three or four researchers. And you go, no, 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 that's too many. Just start with one and, and kind of go from there. So, and yeah, it was something that, that really, be, I think because people were able to see the difference that it made and, and researchers were really facilitators for the rest of the team. So their job, yes, was to run the research and set it up and, and facilitate it and do the analysis and all that kind of thing. But they created these these um, 
opportunities for the entire team to be able to see how what they were working on was solving problems or how what they were working on worked really well or didn't work so well. And so they, I think that was like the most powerful thing that, that they did was really to be very uh, open and inclusive in the way that the whole team was invited and expected to to come along and see for themselves firsthand what was happening. And our, um, our research labs that we had on site were always full always full, like our observation room, we just had to keep making it bigger and bigger all the time because so many people would come in and, and watch these sessions. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I think, you know, it was that, A, it was, it's super helpful. B, I think um, it's, it's really, it's great feedback that the team gets. It, it provides, it shows the meaningfulness of the work that they're doing. And I think that that's a really desirable thing for teams to be able to see what I'm doing makes a difference, has an impact, it, it matters. And, you know, I like to think that that contributes to team health as well. What's the difference in the culture of government versus, you know, software technology companies where that kind of response, that kind of commitment and engagement can happen? Well, I was going to say governments don't have growth teams. They do have behavioral scientists, so which are behavioral economists, which are kind of a similar-ish type thing, but those, they don't, they, they tend to still experiment on letters more than they do on digital things. Um, but I think that's... I think that it's it's a few things. I think that um, people in government feel, uh, this is the generalisation, I don't even know if I believe it 100%. Certainly where, in places that I've worked, people in government have felt their responsibility to the people who are the service receivers. Uh, and the idea of experimenting on them is something that you would approach much more carefully than what we see, I think, in a lot of other um, sort of software technical organisations. I think that's one part of it. I think the other thing is very few people that I met in government thought that they could do my job. They, they didn't know that, that, that my job was a thing and they didn't think that they could do it probably as well as I could. Whereas I find in tech companies there's a lot more of that. Like everyone's got some kind of a research background. Everyone, everyone feels a lot more confident and capable at doing this stuff themselves. And I know that that's not universally true. I know there are a lot of companies where everyone's terrified of going out and talking to customers, but I do feel as though in tech companies, some tech companies, there is a lot more um, kind of overconfidence about your ability to go out and do this. And especially this, you know, and I don't want to sound like I'm a complete downer on the lean sort of thing because they're done well, it's great. But I think that has really encouraged people to think that that there's not much to this, that anyone else, anyone can go and have a chat with a customer and that's that's what we do. Um, yeah, I think they're, they're probably a few of the things that are, that are really different. That's a good comparison. Can we go back in time a little bit further maybe? I'd just love to hear about, you know, how you found research as a, as a thing. What, how, how is it that you ended up in this field? Mm. Well, um, I was one of those people who growing up didn't know what I wanted to be. Um, I briefly wanted to be a vet, but that was mostly because of a, a popular television show that was on in Australia at the time. Which one? It was called A Country Practice and it had a, a, um, 
uh, a character called Vicky, who was the vet, and I thought she was the bee's knees. Um, but then, yeah, then kind of beyond that, that was like when I was in primary school, and then beyond that, you know, I was like, I don't I really don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Um, I I went after high school. I went and did a university degree in communications, um, and I could have gone and and done a bunch of other different degrees. I I kind of applied for like this variety of all different kinds of things in different cities like it was a toss-up between doing music in Melbourne or communications in Sydney and I, and I thought in the end I chose communications in Sydney because they had nine hours face-to-face time and it was pass fail and I thought that sounded pretty cruisy and after yeah after being a bit of a study nerd in high school I thought maybe I'd earned a break <sighs> It was, yeah, I was not my best thought out decision. Um, and I didn't really know what I was doing there. I was like, yeah. Um, and then I was working at the same time. I, I just, yeah, I really didn't know what I wanted to do at all. I met the internet at, um, at uni for the first time. And then in one of my kind of weird jobs that I was doing, I was working for a legal services company. And the guy who had started that company, one of his kind of big market advantages was this software that he had had delivered, de- um, designed basically, which ran the all of the kind of logistics of, of his company. Um, and the guy who... You know, as, as software does, sometimes it just stops working or it needs changing. And the guy who was in charge of, of the software was um, was a, a supplier. And when he couldn't be bothered coming on site to fix stuff, he would ask me to do it. And so I got to understand a little bit about kind of how how software happened. And then we started thinking about doing internet stuff. And uh, it, just, it, it just morphed into like an, a really early e-commerce offering and I was asked to be the project manager of that and I just I thought to myself this internet thing this is it right finally this is why I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up because the internet didn't exist when I was growing up um so I thought that was really exciting and then I went and worked in some digital agencies I had a job called a producer and a producer basically did everything except for writing most of the code uh and the visual design so you did the project management the account management the interaction design the information architecture all, all of that sort of stuff. Um, a lot of the sort of project strategy stuff as well. This was in the early days when agencies were still kind of really small. Um, and then over time, I just kind of got rid of the stuff that was less interesting to me to focus in on the stuff that was very interesting to me. And and at the time, it was it was um, information architecture and and the research that goes behind that. And I kept doing both of those things for for quite for quite a while. At one point, I was working on this huge project in Australia. Um, and trying to get budget to do some research. And it was a tiny, tiny budget that I wanted and I had to fight so hard for it. And it was a project that was being run by an ad agency and I'm pretty sure they they spent on lunch every week what I was asking for for research for the entire project. I got very frustrated. And that was basically what kind of drove me to go and move to London was I could see that they had agencies there where they had lots of like 30 people like me working in the same company, which just like sounded extraordinary. And I wanted I wanted to go and see what that was like. Um, so I moved to London, went and worked for a place called Flow Interactive, uh, which at the time was filled with what I thought were the smartest and most interesting people I'd ever met in my life and, and learned loads from that experience. And then um, then I started getting to the point where I realised that in a lot of large organisations, if you stayed in one place for long enough, the same brief would come around over and over again. Um, and that, that you could have a great time doing research and nobody would do a blind thing with it. Um, and that that stopped being fun when I realised that it 
that it was fun to do the research and then nobody would do anything with it. That was good the first two times. The third time, I'm like, mm. um, And then I uh, was I, at Flo, my boss at the time, apologetically said to me, I'm really sorry, Lisa, but I've got this friend. He's got this startup. Um, would you mind, can you do me a favour? And like, I know it's not very glamorous to work on startups, but would you mind working on the startup? Uh, and so I did. And um and I remember sitting in the usability lab doing usability testing, as you did, and in the observation room was the entire team, which was amazing that the team actually turned up. Um, not only that, but they were changing the prototype as I was doing the testing. So, like, you know, compared to the, the other companies that did nothing with anything ever, like, they were doing it as I was doing the research, which was surprising, but, you know, but, but good. And that was it. From then I just sort of decided I've got to, I need to go work with people who are actually going to use the research. And that led me into working with tech startups for a long time. And then there's, you know. And, and did you worked for yourself as a consultant? Yeah, I had my own business for, for a long time uh, and worked with, with like a lot with tech startups in, in London. And then also with some larger companies as well, like some big publishing companies and universities and, and places like that too. And it was it was actually a combination of all of those things over time led me to believe that um, that actually probably the biggest, most important challenge is how you change the DNA of the organisation that you're working in, um, that you can do the best research project in the world, but if the company that you're working for, the organisation that you're working for, doesn't have the motivation or the, yeah, to, to actually do something with it, then it's kind of pointless. And, yeah, I remember looking back on, like, 10 years of work and just going, what have I got to show for this? And it felt like very little. And, yeah, it was not long after that, actually, that the opportunity to go join GDS emerged. And I thought to myself, right, well, this is this – if I can't have an impact at this organisation, I can't have an impact anywhere because, you know, like you said before, it was so full of people who were – really smart and really orientated to do the right thing and super meaningful work as well. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's that's where I still find myself today where, uh, you know, I, I love I love research, I love, I love the way that we learn things and, and what that means, but the thing that really drives me is seeing an organisation almost like a design problem and thinking about, like, what are we, what levers can we pull, what do we choose to do, how do we position ourselves so that, we can not just do fun research, but we can actually really have this knowledge and insight and this practice fundamentally change how this organization operates. That's a great arc that you just articulated for yourself. It's really fabulous. So let's go back to you describing sort of the 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 makeup of the the team at Atlassian. And you talked about two pieces which are, I don't know, unusual, but maybe worth digging into a little bit. One was research ops, uh, which is sort of an emergent practice. I'd love to hear you uh, explain a little more about what that looks like for you all. And that market research is part of, of the team as well. Mm. Yeah, so what, uh, yeah, let's talk about both of those. So our ops component is relatively new. I was fortunate enough to convince Kate Towsey to come and meet me in Sydney and, and start sort of really building that capability for us. At the moment, it really comprises kind of three main bits, I think. One is the recruitment thing. So how do we how do we create a really good infrastructure for doing what's for us mostly kind of B2B uh, research recruitment, pretty tricky, um, in a way that serves the needs of our organisation. And that's, you know, that, that's 
turns out to be interesting in a lot of ways in terms of setting up an infrastructure for that, but also seeing that as an as potentially an opportunity to try to help shape the the that kind of who's doing what kind of research when uh, thing. It gives us gives us visibility into what the current activity is and what kind of stuff's happening, um, which is which is good. We we don't have. Yeah, we don't really have a, a good infrastructure for taking every bit of demand and, and shaping it because that's that would be a huge bit of work and also going back to the time stuff. Um, anyway, so so recruitment is one bit of it. We have an, another another part which is really looking at the technical infrastructure. So there's actually these days um, quite there's a there's a big technology component to setting up research well in organizations, whether it's how the recruiting happens, whether it's where the data goes. Um, you know, we do we we run kind of the large scale surveys out of our organization as well. So getting get like there's there's a surprising amount of tech involved in doing that reasonably well also. So we have somebody whose job it is really just to completely look at the, the research tech side of things. Um, and then we also have what we what we call an engagement and impact team, uh, which is a new a new experiment for us. And this is really looking at how can we uh, try to build a really strong muscle around making sure that the work that we're doing in the team that's not embedded is uh, consumed and understood and acted on by the rest of the organization. So this might be some of the customer happiness surveys that we're doing, or it could be the top tasks work or some other sort of strategic work that we're doing. How do we make sure that when everybody's got their nose to the grindstone focused on the thing that they're interested in right now, they they have this kind of curiosity and interest and understanding for how this other research that's happening that they haven't commissioned could be useful to them. Uh, so yeah, so that that's 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 interesting. And so the the ops thing for me is really thinking about like how can we how can we help make sure that the researchers are really focused on research and not all of the kind of logistical uh, stuff around it. And then secondly, around thinking about scale, how can we how can we try to make sure that the work that we are doing in our team scales out to the rest of the organization and that the things that we do at scale are of good quality. So you described in your own arc uh, how you know you discovered that change of the the DNA, changing minds, wasn't maybe the most compelling part of the research for you. Mm. But in building up that that third piece, the engagement and I'm sorry, there was a impact engagement impact mm. part of ops. You're sort of asking researchers to not be involved in that part of it as much. So I in in the way that we're setting up our team, and it's and it's. It's a work in progress right now. Um, we we have chosen, I have chosen to centralise a bunch of the work that we are doing, mostly in order to create the opportunity to do the work that I think we need to do that wouldn't come naturally out of demand within the product teams. Yeah. So to do some of this work that steps back from the features and gets to this really kind of grounding understanding of, of what the needs are. So we chose to do that because we would never be asked to do that by the teams, but I felt that we really needed to do it. Increasingly now we also have researchers who are working embedded in the teams, which is much more like what we did, you know, at, at GDS and DTA and other places. Um, and so the, 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 the engagement impact teams are really looking at supporting the work of the centralised teams but um, because the people who are embedded tend not to need it so much. They have really close 
collaboration with their product teams um, and they're doing they're either meeting the demand or, or really kind of closely shaping the demand in in the teams for the research work that that's happening uh, so but I think what we what, what we what we want to do over time is really have this kind of like good creative tension between the cross-cutting strategic research or that sort of foundational work and the stuff that's happening in the teams as well when you have large and you know Atlassian's really not that big we're about three and a half thousand people so tiny compared to some organizations but quite fragmented like lots of products lots of product teams um, when you have that kind of complexity in your organization you have to work really hard to make sure that all the people who should be seeing the thing see the thing um, and that they understand why it's important because a lot of people don't make the connection like for us when we do the research we go oh it's completely obvious why that person over there should find this really interesting but they are so focused on something else they often see the work and then go well, I don't why should I care about that so you often have to really do that sort of bridging exercise as well so that's where uh, engagement and impact are really focused on I think is looking at really supporting the cross-cutting work the work that's not done for any one particular team but actually is super relevant to them if we can get them to attend to it I think you know this ops in general brings up lots of interesting questions about um, you know where do you delineate what a researcher does and I, I, I appreciate your point that it depends on the context of the organization and what mm. their sort of their the optimal remit for them is to to lead to this larger kinds of change. But right, and so if I'm a researcher, um, I want I want my research to be consumed, to be relevant. And I don't think you're doing this, but were I to be completely isolated from the people consuming it, then I don't get that feedback loop. Mm. And you've talked about sort of that feedback mm-hmm. loop for the researcher is an important thing. That being said, if there's a team that can support me or that I can support the the you know to help to help drive impact, to help drive that interaction, then that, yeah, that enhances the researcher's ability to kind of reach people. So it just, I guess you're hearing me thinking aloud about where is sort of an ops person and an enhancement to what the researcher can do versus, because a lot of ops, like in, in the way I hear people talk about DevOps is like, it's stuff we don't want the developers to be doing. And I don't, I don't know. I think there's things that research ops does that, in my judgment, I want researchers to be doing, and maybe it's about building up infrastructure to help them do that better, not take it away from them. Exactly. Okay. So the idea is definitely not that um, that there's like a handover point that the research goes, here's the insights, and then engagements and impact take those and, and spread them out to the world. That's definitely not what it is. Um, I see engagement and uh, impact people as being people who know how to get things seen by the right people and know how to how to bring people with interest to come and and um, and pay attention um, and so and so a, a lot of it really is about making those connections but the other thing is like I find in my organization I'm one of very few people who has got visibility across everything all of the research work that we're doing and lots of things that are happening in the organizations and so I can draw connections that other people can't draw but I'm just one person and I spend most of my time in meetings. So I'm kind of hoping, and it's very early days for us with this whole engagement impact thing. So we, you know, we're, we're shaping it on a weekly basis right now. But my hope is that because these people are tasked with having really good visibility across what, what's happening in the organization and they're helping to facilitate these connections between the researchers and the organization, they're going to get a similar view to what I have where they can start also to make these connections because I feel as though that that's one of the opportunities that we have in a research team looking out across the entire organization is to be able to see 
opportunities for connection, you know, to reduce duplication, to sort of build, um, build sort of sense making from seeing things from all these different perspectives, to connect people to things that they didn't even know existed, that that would be really useful to them. And so I'm kind of hoping that that's something that over time this team will be able to build as well, is that ability to see where the where the opportunities and connections are across the entire organisation that, that really nobody else except for me right now can see. Para, I see a parallel with the design education effort where you know there's all these things that anyone that's worked in research for any amount of time says like, oh yeah, we have a lot of responsibilities. Mm-hmm. In addition to doing the research, we have to be teaching people and we have to be trying to advocate for our research and planning. And it, and it seems, I don't know, I'm inspired as the more you explain this because you're basically saying, yeah, if that's a responsibility, maybe we need a team, maybe that has to be somebody's job. And that you can, you know, as opposed to sort of bearing it. And when we when we make it all part of one person's job, we don't necessarily even acknowledge that, hey, education's part of my job. Hey, evangelism is part of my job. Hey, driving impact. Uh, by creating a team, you sort of make, to me, it makes me more mindful of like, oh yeah, that's a thing that you could spend full time on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doesn't mean that, we, yeah, to your point, you're not taking it away. You're, you're, you're creating specialties mm. uh, for all the different facets of, I mean, we're, we talk about research, but it's so many different things. Absolutely. Uh, and you're, you're just, uh, you're naming and staffing specialties that I haven't seen named and staffed before. Yeah, it's really interesting to try to get people to take these jobs because they're like, what's the career path for this? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea what the career path is for this. Let's work it out together. And so it it, it requires really special people to be willing to take these roles and to kind of to believe in what the opportunity is and what the purpose is. But we are, you know, we're we're, um, taking a lean approach to to shaping the team. But like I said, like I always think about this as a design problem. I'm yeah. always thinking like what's the need? Um, and like we talked before about the huge amount of, of specialism that's involved in being a great educator. And so the idea that you can just do that in your spare time in between projects is is just not realistic, I don't think, if you want to do a good job at it. And it's the same with the engagement piece, right? I mean, as soon as like you're always under pressure to like get a product, a project wrapped up and there's always something that you should be starting next. And so it can be really difficult for the researchers to go, right, now I'm going to do the engagement and impact part of my job and I'm going to spend, you know, three weeks just making sure that everyone knows I'm going to go and do all of these town halls that I'm going to go and run these workshops and I'm going to, I'm going to write these blogs, I'm going to do all of these things. Like that takes a lot of work, especially if, you know, you're exhausted from all of the, you've just done all of your analysis work, you just, or you want to crawl in a, under a rock somewhere and rest for ages. Um, and, and now you have to go out and, and do all of this like, you know, road showing of what you've learned. They still, you know, the researchers still have to do most of that work. But having engagement and impact there, I think, can make it so that it's much more streamlined. We don't have to sit down and go, all right, who do we have to go and talk to? How do we, like, when are they having their meetings? How can we get into their team meeting and just present there? Like these, the part of what this team's doing is just really having all of that knowledge and going, right, okay, so what you want to do after you've done a project is this, 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 this. And it just takes a lot of that repetitive effort out. And it means that the whole process of engaging 
and being impactful becomes more streamlined. I talked to someone uh, a little while ago and they described uh, hiring a librarian, like a reference librarian. And it was, it was we had the conversation about the data repository mm. and they'd, made, they'd come to the realization that it's not about the infrastructure, it's about having someone own it, advocate for it, and that it's the same thing. Let's Here's a problem that we have that we always talk about. What would happen if we created a role for that and, and could take the, the pressure off the other people that have other things to do? 100%. I mean, I have I have a research librarian on my list of roles to hire yet. It's waiting to get the headcount for it. But yeah, I completely, completely agree with that point of view. So now market research, that also is part of, uh, of your group. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, we, we, market research came about because I inherited MPS and that's a mixed blessing, obviously, but, but I, I, I wanted to kind of embrace it as an opportunity because it was something that particularly executive people in the organization cared about a lot. It was a good way. It was a good sort of vehicle for getting access at, at the highest levels and getting people's attention at the highest levels. But obviously we were pretty, obviously, I was pretty unhappy with um, with our methodology, which was really, you know, surveying way too many people in product when they were trying to get their jobs done. And also, you know, the, the methodology behind how we did the analysis of that. So, yeah, so we um, spent a bunch of time thinking about what we wanted to do that was different to that. And, and when we... When we sat down and thought about the kinds of people that we needed to run the, the, a, a better program of work, it became really clear to me that um, certainly in Sydney, we don't have quantitative user researchers. Oh no, in the Valley, you can hire them um, fairly well. They, they exist. People acknowledge them as a thing. It's not a thing in Sydney. And so the closest thing that I could get to that was to look at market research and particular kinds of, of market researchers um, who would have that ability to actually, you know, really design good surveys and to have really strong uh, skills in thinking about how to how to analyze them and share that information back as well. So yeah, so that's that's we've gone kind of large on that now and and that team is now pretty much staffed with people who've got uh, market research background and it is really that ability to bring in the quantitative analysis that has made a big difference and it's it's it opens up all kinds of opportunities for us. So we now are able to work super closely, for example, with our brand and marketing part of the organisation because we have skill sets that they value in our team now. We can start to pick up research that they would either have built a separate team for or, or would outsource. And I think you know, having those opportunities to have, you know, what, what might have been a voice of the customer team, what might have been a, a marketing research team, uh, all in the one place uh, is super exciting for us uh, and we would not have been able to do that without bringing some market marketing researchers into our team and so that's been something that I probably like if I had not have inherited the MPS probably wouldn't have naturally thought to do but it's one of those kind of happy accidents that I'm really really pleased has happened and I would definitely do again in the future you know the the phrase mixed methods research seems to be sort of a like a hot term right now uh, which to me is about the collaboration between these different different types of yeah research tools or research professionals or research mm-hmm. teams um, I'm, I mean the term seems newish I'm not sure that the practice is that new um, I don't know is that so with these different capabilities that you have is, is that part of how you're able to work 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think also um, it gives us a really strong conduit into some of the other more quantitative parts of the organisation as well. So working much more closely with product analytics is is part of what we've kind of naturally had to and, and been able to do as a result of the work that our quant researchers are doing. Um, so, yeah, it does. It really, I mean, this is something that we've talked about a lot as well, is trying to look at, you know, these mixed methodologies and looking at all the different data sources that we have available to us. Um, you know, and that, that includes uh, people like our like our support organisation and our kind of field and sales operations as well. Um, but, yeah, so I think... Um, I think that that having yeah having that particular capability in the team has been really critical to helping bring the other sources closer to ours. Um, and we're starting to get into a much better place at being able to sort of cross-reference each other's work uh, and um, and 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 demonstrate that being able to do that is is a good thing. And kind of going back to the reliability uh, question again, right? That that's something that you should look for when you're looking to the reliability of the work that you're doing. Like, can I actually see this in other data sources in this organisation as well? Yeah, I can. Okay, great. Then I feel like I can rely on mm. it more. If we were to have an episode of Dollars to Donuts in 2025, talking about and let's imagine that there's still podcasts and they're still lasting and we're still <laughs> and you're still in the role, like what would we be talking about? What would you be highlighting? Mm, I don't know. I, hopefully, a whole new, different set of problems than what I have right now. Yeah, you know, I, so I have I have a picture that I drew, which is I call it my FY20 plus plus next gen research plan vision type thing and it has a whole bunch of different kind of uh, sections components to what a research and insights team might look like that we would build over the next couple of years um, and I that so that's I kind of have a sense of where I want to get to with it I can't I'm not yet at the point of being able to anticipate problems would be then yeah here I am assuming that we'd be talking about the problems <laughs> not all of the great accomplishments that we've had since then but that's I mean that's the way I think a research leader, your, your, your response isn't unique. I think uh, finding problems that are mm. big ones and, and tackling them is mm. why, of course, that's your response because that's the kind of person that ends up in the role that you're in. Mm. Uh, I think the thing the thing that I would be most proud of, the thing that I'm really looking for as we go forward is across the organisation for us, whether it's in product teams, whether it's at executive level, whether it's in like the, the sales or the, the support, wherever in the organisation it is, I would really love for us to have developed this natural tendency to talk about problems and opportunities from the users and the customer's point of view and not from our own product or feature point of view. That for me feels like the big transformation that could make a huge difference. Um, and so... A lot of the things that we're working on now is how how do we how do we build that understanding? How do we build the connections between that understanding and the things that we're working on, or things we're working thinking about working on? What are the big things and and the tiny things that we can do to start to change the way that we think about things? And so I remember when I was at GDS, one of the tiny things that we did was we just said, it's not user testing, it's usability testing or user research, uh, you know, and tons of people will listen to this and go, oh, it really doesn't matter. But what it did do is by getting people to do that little correction in their head every time they accidentally said the wrong thing or accidentally almost said the wrong thing and they'd go, we don't test users, 
we test ourselves, you know. Um, we test our work, we test our ideas, we test our designs. That in, in a government context was a really super important thing. And so it's that kind of, it's almost that linguistic correction of like making sure that when we talk about things, we, we don't, like I, I, I often say to, to, to people that I'm working with at the moment, like if you can't describe the problem without saying an Atlassian word, then you don't understand the problem. And so that that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a future where when we talk about things, we don't talk about it by the product name or the feature name or some other kind of internal buzzwordy thing that we have, but we use language that clearly comes from an understanding of our, our users and our customers and, and the needs that they have and the problems that they are trying to solve. That's 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 my kind of mission, I think, more than anything else right now, because I feel like that will have the biggest cultural impact. That's fabulous. Anything else we want to talk no, about? No, I think we've I think we've done it to death, Steve. All right. Well, thank you very much, <laughs> Lisa. It's really interesting to talk to you. I really appreciate all your time. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Dollars to Donuts. Follow the podcast on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast at portable.com slash podcast or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify and the rest. The website has transcripts, show notes and all the episodes. Get another copy of my books, Interviewing Users and Doorbells, Danger and Dead Batteries from RosenfeldMedia.com or Amazon. Thank you, Bruce Todd, for the great Dollars to Donuts theme.